Hello, welcome to this week's 442 Insider Podcast. I'm publisher Andy Jackson. Joining me as ever is editor Trevor Trahan and a very special guest this week is from Fox Sports, Simon FC. Simon <laughs> FC! <laughs> the latest on the world game. This is 442 Insider. Hello, welcome to this week's 442 Insider Podcast. I'm publisher Andy Jackson. Joining me is editor Trevor Trahan and our very special guest Simon Hill from Fox Sports. Simon. Good to see you guys. Good morning. Um, right, no, no surprises with what's going to be top of the agenda this week. I'm going to change the order slightly. Uh, we're going to leave the A-League review uh, until part two. Uh, we're going to kick off, unsurprisingly, with our, uh, our take on the last week's uh, happenings, the World Cup bid decision. Now, obviously, excellent Fox Sports FC show on Tuesday, I might say. Thank you. Um, but it was chaired by yourself, so we didn't get to really hear what you thought. So we thought it would be a good idea to get you in, uh, to get your opinion. So let's, let's kick off. All right, let's look at this in four parts. Part one, Australia's bid. Hindsight, what do we think? Where do we think it was strong? Where do we think it was weak? Where do we think we lost it? Sure. I mean, I, I think up to arrive in, in Zurich, um, I was relatively confident. I thought it was quite a good bid. They'd put some good, you know, technical parts together, good legacy story. You know, they, they seem to have an angle, albeit quite safe. It's, you know, it seemed like we had some kind of story there. Um, when you started getting worried was, I know a lot of people have criticised it, was watching that video, the Scooby-Doo kangaroo, <laughs> Scooby-Roo, as it's known. Um, then you started thinking, well, hang on, you know, there's no football angle there. That looks a really naive video, a really naive bid, and now I'm starting to get slightly worried, and that proved to be the case. But the, you know, there were certainly positives in there. Frank is sort of boasting, not, maybe not boasting, but you know, he's saying about how it's a sort of a, a clean bid, which I don't doubt for one minute, but it, it was a very slow and steady bid. It wasn't spectacular. We played up obvious things, mainly cliches about Australia as a country. Um, and yeah, and it, it never really did enough to to excite people that wanted to do something different. And FIFA obviously wanted to take the World Cup to new places. Australia would have been one of them, but just wasn't deemed, you know, um, important enough for it to happen. So, yeah, I agree with uh, with pretty much all of that. Uh, look, it's easier to say with hindsight, isn't it? I think at the time I was probably like Trevor. Uh, you know, going into the uh, the voting, I was reasonably confident, without being overconfident, that we would have a good shout or at least get close to it. I think the thing that shocked us all was that uh, we went out in the first round. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we'll come on to the uh, the selection process a little bit later, but um, I think in the light of that, probably again with the benefit of hindsight, the bid was a little bit naive. Um, it was a very safe bid, uh, and there's no doubt that Australia would have put on, to use the cliche that they used during the campaign and no worries World Cup but clearly that wasn't going to be enough Um, I don't think we made enough of our football history I don't think we made enough of the opportunity that bringing the World Cup here would have brought for the game down under Um, perhaps we should have made more of our battle with the other codes it needed a hook really to say why should you bring it to Australia and instead we presented a bid that just said we'll bring it here because it'll be clean it'll be safe it'll be secure Uh, we've got nice people we've got lovely beaches we've got Ian Thorpe I'm not sure people (laughs) knew who Ian Thorpe was to be honest overseas Cathy Freeman still running but it's you know and they're all very good reasons to to bring a major sporting event to Australia there's no doubt about that and I think in, in any other selection process they would have been enough to get Australia at least close to hosting the World Cup. But as we now know, it was nowhere near enough, and that's because 
of the politics involved. And uh, I think if we've learned a lesson from this whole process, it's that really the game in this country, not just at FIFA level, but probably within our own boundaries as well, we need to be a lot more aggressive as to how we sell our game and promote our game. And at the moment, we're a little bit safe. Um, we're a little bit reticent about putting ourselves forward. And that has to change. We have to... Uh, you know, we, we've underlined really that we are reasonable players now on not just a, an Australian stage, but a world stage as well. Even though the bid failed, we can compete and we have to take confidence from that and we have to sell our game better. We have to be aggressive. We have to underline what's good about our game and we have to fight the other codes. And that, that doesn't mean uh, necessarily slagging the other codes off or, or being disrespectful to them. them but we have style. to be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've got to stop being Anthony Mundine to use a um, modern analogy after last night. Mm. We've got to stop taking the punches without hitting back. We've got to be firm in our belief that this is a good game and we're good at it and that we can sell it and we can be competitive, not just in this marketplace, but internationally as well. I mean, I was sat there watching the, the cringe El McPherson bit. Oh. Where it's like, you know, mm. Frank Lowe's a hero. Like, that's not for the, that was, that, what did that have to do with the World Cup bit? Didn't come off, did it? And I was just thinking there's a real obvious, you know, this, this integration into Asia. Why not have Sasha Ognanovsky, Kate Gill, and Melissa Barbieri stood on stage with the, you know, hi, I'm Kate Gill. I'm the Asian women's footballer of the year. Hi, I'm Sasha Ognanovsky. I'm captain of a Korean team that's just well, won the, the Asian Cup. There was no home. football in there. And, you know, and, and that, they, you know, there was always sort of, about, oh, well, we're not Asian. Like, what a great advert that we are integrated into Asia. And the danger with, you know, there was a lot of Ben talking about, you know, we're part of Asia. And I thought that was a bit naive when there were three actual Asian bids. And yeah. the head of the Asian <laughs> Confederation was pushing his country. I mean, in hindsight, we didn't really have a chance, do we, when you think of it like that and we're pitching it as an Asian world and wh- Cup. And what about, the, what about the multicultural angle in Australia? I mean, yeah. again, not having a go at the other codes, but they're, they're, they're reasonably, maybe AFL less so, but certainly Rugby League and Rugby Union, they're pretty monocultural. Whereas football is the game that unites all the communities in Australia. We saw that at the Uruguay game in 2005, November. That was the first time that I've been to a sporting event in Australia where every single part of the community was not only represented on the field, but also represented in the stands. And it's such a force for good, the Socceroos. And we, we should have perhaps made more than that. And instead, we had a video that showed Cathy Freeman. Fantastic. We all love Cathy. She's a great athlete, a super person. She didn't say anything. And there was no football link. And here was the chance for her to say, you know, th- this is the game that unites all the communities. And I'm a part of that unites all the communities. And I'm a part of one of those communities that's perhaps historically been fractured from mainstream Australian society, if you want to put it that way. And this is the game that, that brings us all together. Fantastic. But we didn't use any of those strands of the arguments. We just we played it safe. And I, I do think the other thing is, is that... Um, uh, what was the legacy for football? Maybe FIFA looked at that and, and saw that all the stadiums that were going to be built were perhaps really not going to be uh, to football's benefit post-2022. Yeah, I'd agree with that, definitely. What about guitar stadiums, though? Well, they're going to be dismantled and sent elsewhere. As I said, Guitar's afterwards, a completely like, different <laughs> argument. I think, I think the Sydney FC should put their hand up for one of them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about you know people on that video, what about Jade North? 
has he not got an interesting story of to, to tell, you know? I mean, the, yeah. Socceroos' first um, indigenous yeah, we might, captain. We might not yeah. have people with the star power of Beckham, but I certainly think we've got people with just as compelling stories. Well, England we used it. In. If you look at the England bid, England used that with uh, the guy Eddie Afakafi yeah, yeah, at the start. You know, he's from a, a disadvantaged community in Manchester, and I have to admit, you know, my cultural cringe kicked in being a, a Mancunian and a City fan when he came up on the stage and said, football changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But he actually went down really well, mm. um, and he was used to very good positive effect by the English bid, even though they didn't win it. Um, and I think perhaps we could have done a bit of the same. Now, obviously, much was made of the fact that we didn't have a seat on the executive committee, so there were, we didn't really have a guaranteed vote. The only guaranteed vote we had was Oceania, and we know what happened there. So we, we sort of tried to get around that with the use of Peter Hargitay and, and Radman. So do we think? Again, in hindsight, that that was that was a mistake. You'd probably say, well, they, they didn't really deliver much because. Uh well, it, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Because we don't know what they did. Um, we don't know how much influence they had or not. Because you know we weren't party to those discussions. Look, what I will say about Hargitay and Radman is, uh, you know, I've never met them, but they are names that I've heard floating around FIFA circles for many, many years. So. Perhaps Frank Lowy believed in all good faith that uh, you know, they would help deliver the, the necessary votes. And Look, having spoken to some insiders, the Australians were convinced they had six votes, mm, absolutely I mean. guaranteed, yeah. bang on. And it was only when they walked into that auditorium, and uh, again, reportedly I wasn't there, Frank looked at some of those who were voting for Australia, apparently, and they looked away. So, you well, know, sort of the that, that's about the process. They I know. walked in, you know, that yeah. they knew that they... They'd won it, you know. We'll, we'll get on to that in a bit. But, OK, I mean, let's let's talk about the two bids that did get up. Uh, obviously, Russia 2018, Qatar 2022. Is it been too simplistic to say that it was based on money? Limitless pots of money, and a less than free press in both countries. Well, did, did, I'll did, tell you what, did just, the executive committee just look at this and say, just this on is the, the best press, ride we're going to get? Just on the press. I, I did want to make a point there about the press. Now, there's been a lot of debates, even in Australia, about these reports in the Sunday Times and the BBC Panorama programme that allegedly hurt England's bid. And, look, there's no doubt about it. They did hurt England's bid. Um, but what does that tell you about FIFA and the way it works when a free press which uncovered what looked like pretty solid cases of corruption... I mean, the Times definitely, wasn't it? Exactly. ...have been castigated for doing their job. Now, OK, the timing of the Panorama programme was awful from, from England's bid point of view. But that's the way a free press works. But and if you're I looking thought, at ratings, well, exactly. the best time to do it and is it, just before And I the thought Mohammed bin Hammam's comments, and he made this publicly, was so telling... He lambasted the UK press by saying it's a disgrace and blah, 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 the usual stuff. And he actually said you would not get that type of journalism in Qatar. <laughs> yeah. Now, that was put forward, no doubt, to be a positive for FIFA. I, I'm incredulous at that. And Blatter opened his, apparently opened the voting by saying, and let's not forget. Absolutely. Now, let's, let's be honest. If you're on the FIFA Exco or if you work for FIFA in those positions of power, if you've got nothing to hide, those press reports shouldn't worry you. That's just part of everyday modern democratic living is scrutiny when you're in positions of power. 
Uh, and clearly, they, they scurried for cover, a lot of these people. They didn't want 12 years of critical analysis from the UK press in the lead-up to what would have been an English World Cup, or, uh, sorry, eight years, because it was 2018, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and I just find that unbelievable. These are people charged with uh, being the guardians of our game, and they're saying that they don't want to be scrutinised. And also, you know, they've, they've taken it to two places where they can pretty much go. There's 22 blokes now that can guarantee whenever they walk within an inch of those places, they'll be treated like lords. True. They'll do what they want, when they want, you know. Um, well, that, look, that's the way that, uh, you know, FIFA is to, to a large degree. Um, it's, it's a boys' club, let's be honest. And anybody who was shocked by the way this voting uh, turned out only needs to, to hark back to 1998 when Sepp Blatter was uh, going for the FIFA presidency to succeed Joao Havelange. And at the time, of course, the red-hot favourite by a country mile was UEFA's Lennart Johansson. Yeah. He had it in the bag. I interviewed him in Burkina Faso at the African Cup of Nations in Ouagadougou, and he was basically in. He was the successor to Havelange. And as we now know, within the space of a week or two, that completely changed around, and Blatter was, uh, was made king. And if you'd have seen Lennart Johansson Johansson's face that, afterwards, he, he was ashen. He could not believe it. Yeah. And that's the way FIFA works. Mm. In terms of the actual bid, I think Russia would be a great World Cup. Mm. I went there for I the agree. first time four years ago, went to St. Petersburg, and just thought it was an amazing city. And I think you've got the money and they've got the country. I think it would be a great World Cup. I know a lot of English people are disappointed. Also, you know, but Russia has got football history. You know, they've yeah, got, it has. You know, they've got a, a, you know, a good local league. They've got you know, they've hosted Champions League finals. I think, you know, I, I think the Russia one, I think most people can, okay, you, you look at the obvious money side of things, but then beyond that, as you say, you look at the bid and you think, you know what, as a football fan, that's going to be a good World Cup. Quite looking forward to going over there, yeah. which is what a World Cup should be about. In the the summer, you know. There are only a, a couple of things that, that concern me uh, about the Russian bid. First of all, they got a poor uh, inspection reports. Um, if that's going to be ignored, why do we bother They're having it? They're pointless, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, and secondly, there is, whether the Russians like it or not, a terrible issue with racism at Russian football grounds. Now, you know, maybe that's part of the, the reason that they, they've given the World Cup to Russia, that they want that sorted out. I yeah. don't know. You would hope so. I mean, it, you, you would desperately hope that come 2018, if Ghana kick off the World Cup, for example, in Moscow, that we don't have banners with bananas and racist abuse being thrown on the pitch by some of the home supporters because there's a black team on the park because that will be an awful look for FIFA so I hope that that's going to be looked at in the build-up Yep Alright, Qatar oh, okay. Struggle a little bit more for positive things to okay. say about this You watch the presentation It's ridiculously impressive 50 billion The stadiums look like they're going to be the amazing The stadiums look amazing yeah. But for me, 12 stadiums within 20 miles is not a World Cup No also, it looks like they're going to create a World Cup theme park for a month, pretty much, and then take it down, and then and that'll be it, you know. And they've no got the money to do that. But again, where's the legacy for that? If we're talking about, you know, let's look at all the important aspects that we talked about. The, the technical report seems to have been ignored. The presentations don't appear to have counted for much because England's were the best in the you presentations. Know, um, the legacy, 
Yeah, what is the legacy of a Qatar World Cup? Well, look, I think if I'll play devil's advocate for a second, um, and I've got my own reasons for not thinking that Qatar is a good host. The, the one thing that it will do is bring the World Cup to a region, a football-mad region that has never had it before, uh, and that is, of course, the Arabic world. And I think there was a, a compelling case on those grounds to take it to the Middle East. Why don't personally, they do it to the region? Well, yeah. okay, but personally speaking, I don't think Qatar is the right country to host it. I think the United Arab Emirates, and why they don't bid, I've got no idea, because they've got just as much money, if not more. Um, but I think that would have been a better bid. It's a bigger country. Um, the, the rules on alcohol, I know people might scoff at that, but it's an important aspect for a lot of uh, supporters travelling, particularly from uh, westernised countries. They want to go and have a beer and enjoy themselves. And you can do that to a, to a certain extent in Dubai. But those of us who've been to Qatar, and I think you both have as well, uh, no, Trev hasn't. No. But, uh, you know, Qatar is its a very small country. It's going to be very, very hot when the World Cup is out there. Uh, and there's not an awful lot to do. Well, that's Outside one of the best of things about a World Cup. It's in between the matches. It's drinking on the streets. It's mingling and, and everything. And you're not going to be able to do that because you've pretty much got to be air-conditioned somewhere, haven't you, in the stadium or in your hotel. or lot, Just to see as a shopping mall, I heard someone say to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I just got the feeling that, that 2022... And, and I think... I think we've all known that, this, that the process was less than scrupulous. <laughs> and, and, but the outcome has generally been something that you can go, OK, football and fan reasons, I can see why we're going there. And we're all going to go there. Even South Africa was a great destination to go, as it turned out, despite the scaremongering. It was a fantastic World Cup to be a supporter yeah. of. Um, but I think Qatar 22 signals when... The decision-making process is no longer about the fans and the players because the players have not been considered in this. Well, actually, to be honest, uh, Andy Harper made a very good point whilst he was over in Zurich. That the players will actually be looked after very well because they will go, as Andy said, and I'm quoting him here, they will go from an air-conditioned hotel to an air-conditioned training venue and then on to an air-conditioned stadium. They'll be fine. But there won't they, be any issue with the players. Can they air-conditioned training? I think they can, they've got enough money to do whatever they want. I don't think that will be a problem, to be honest. The issue will be and this is the second part of what you were saying, is the fans, not all of them will be able to afford to stay in beautiful air-conditioned hotels. And even if they can and go to air-conditioned stadiums with their air-conditioned tickets, um, <laughs> what are they going to do for the rest of the time? They can't go down to the bar and have a beer because they're all in the hotels. So you're basically going to have an indoor World Cup if it stays in June, because let me tell you, the temperatures out there are between 40 and 50 degrees. It's blindingly hot. You can't go out and sun tan on the beach. You will, well, have to you build, will fry. They'll have to build air-conditioned fan fests. Well, and then people could stay there. I, I, just, I just don't think it's going to be a great World Cup for the supporter. And look, again, having been to Qatar a few times, their domestic league and even their national team to a large extent is not well supported. This, this is a, a common theme throughout the Arabic world is that even though uh, it's not every country in fairness, but n most club sides and most national sides, they, they don't fill the stadiums. We'll be at the Asian Cup next month in Qatar and I doubt very much a side of the home, uh, the home team um, who will draw a decent crowd and maybe Japan and probably Australia because there'll be a few Aussies that will travel over. We'll be watching games in front of empty stadiums. Now, is that a good look for the World I Cup? Pay, or, or are they going to pay people to, to come and watch I it? I think they'll pay people to go, genuinely. I think it's well, it's going to be a very plastic World Cup, though, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, super thing, the ridiculous thing is, is that, obviously, the Asian Cup has been moved to January hmm. because, because of the heat. heat. Yeah. You know, and so now they give them a World Cup. And 
I think Beckenbauer's already said they should move to January. It's like... The complications of that as well. Bizarre. All right. I mean, what, what odds? I mean, how many of the 23-man Qatar squads do we reckon will be Qataris by 2022? <laughs> well, that, to I mean, be fair, there I are a few. Squad, there are a few. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the other issue that uh, has annoyed a lot of people in world football is the fact that they've... Uh, you know, brought in foreign nationals like Sebastian Quintana. Um, a lot of like African the, uh, nations, haven't they? Yeah, a lot of African nations, Abdullah Kone from Senegal. And, uh, you know, they, they bring... The, look, it's, it's easy to cast dispersions and, and you don't want to say it without having absolute proof, but they have an academy there called Aspire, which they, uh, they bring in a lot of overseas kids and the ones that are good enough tend to stay and maybe, you know, down the line get naturalised. Is that uh, fair and legitimate? I don't know. Is that any different to what the Premier League clubs are doing? Well, yeah, but they don't play for England, though, do they? No, true, true. We, right. we just benefit everybody else back in England. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's our role. Uh, all right, the FIFA selection process. Let's get our teeth into this. Um, what do we think? We've touched on the fact that the technical reports appear to count for very little. The whole bidding process, really... Is a waste of everyone's do we think that the, yeah. Do we think that the, the executive committee got the World Cups they wanted and manufacture a process to make it look like it's a process and then just basically, between themselves, yeah, get the result they want? Divided it up. And the, I think the... Sorry, go on, Trev. No, I was going to say, I mean, the guys that vote, obviously it's a decision through committee, but the guys that vote, how much do they speak to their own football association to decide, you know, us as a nation should vote for this country? Because other than that, it's just 22 individuals, isn't it? Just picking I think it, I think it goes higher than that. I mean, if you, if you read what's happened in the last few days, Michel Platini uh, apparently, again, I don't know for sure, but apparently voted for Qatar because his own president, Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, had done some deals with the Qatari government with, reg- with regards to uh, oil and gas. Yeah. So I think it goes even higher than that. But there, I mean... The, Again, a byproduct of the fact that it's a, it's a secret ballot, so we will never see names against votes, leads to all this speculation in the fallout, which we've had. You know, there's talk of the fact that Chuck Blazer voted with Jack Warner and didn't vote for the US, and CONCACAF voted en bloc for Qatar. Now, how ridiculous would that be? Mm. If the head of the US Federation doesn't vote for the US bid? It just beggars belief, doesn't it? And I think... I know we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but what needs to happen really in future, uh, otherwise we're just not going to have any bidders at all in future years, is the process has to become a lot more transparent. I'd, I'd be you know, much more akin to having a system whereby uh, nations were allocated points out of 10 or 100 or whatever it is for each specific category, and those votes were made open and public. Who gave who how many votes and for what reason and then we can all see a totting up process and the one with the most marks wins. That's, it. That's the fairest and most transparent way. Otherwise, you know, it's like watching synchronised swimming. You look at uh, all the different teams, you think they're good, they're good, but it's, it depends on somebody's interpretation. Yeah. Well, and also, they've had two years of nine bidders basically wooing the same 22 blokes mm. over a two-year period, where, and then they've just given it to who they wanted anyway. You know, so... You know, I think there needs to be some hard and fast rules. And if you know Japan and, and South Korea was deemed too soon to have it, they should be told that before the bidding process begins. And how come South Korea yeah. got six votes? How on earth did they get six votes and get through to the third round of voting? But they I must mean, have been doing that to knock out just, Australia, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, well, that's the only reason, Trev. It yeah. can only be that. Can't and the it? same with England. You know, you look at the two countries that went out first, and, and arguably they were the ones that could have amassed votes as other countries went out. 
And, and I guess that's one of my points with it. Was was like I think Qatar got got fewer votes in round two than it got in round one. Yeah, because yeah. it, so, it kicked off. Like so somebody decided between round one and round two that Qatar all of a sudden wasn't the best vote, wasn't the best bid. And uh, what about Japan? Japan got two votes to knock out Australia in the first round. Japan didn't even have government guarantees to host a World Cup, so it was a liability for FIFA. Even their own people didn't believe that they should have the World Cup because they only had it eight years ago. I mean, it's it's treachery of the highest order. It's unbelievable. I, I mean, it, it would be funny if it wasn't so damned annoying. I just think what, you know, one thing that they could bring in that would be very simple that could stop some of the political voting would be that once you voted for someone in round one, you can't change your vote until they're knocked out. Hmm. So you can't, you know, so if I vote, if I vote Japan in round one politically, I have to stick with Japan. I can't get them through the first round and desert them in yep, the second. That's a good point. You know, so it's like, right, if I think this is the best bid, my vote stays with this bid until it's knocked out. And only when it's knocked out can I then change my vote. Because yeah. clearly what was happening was people were voting for countries that they didn't support to knock out dangers in the first round, England and Australia, and then switch their bid to who they supported. I'd, I'd also like to go back to the, um, the, the way the system <clears throat> excuse me, used to be in that there could only be one bid from one confederation. Yeah. And I think that yeah. would... I mean, otherwise we have this ridiculous situation like we had this time where Mohammed bin Hammam, who, let's be honest, was the key player in this whole bid process, the head of the Asian Football Confederation, but only batting for one side, which yeah. was Qatar. Now, OK, he's Qatari. You understand that maybe he wants it to go to his host country. But there were other Asian bids that needed equal support because and, and he as the Asian president should have been neutral in my opinion when you've got four Asian bids on the table he should have stood back and said well you know what there are four of my boys in here I've got to stand back and, and take a back seat and instead he was brazenly politicking yeah. uh, slagging off other bids particularly the Americans and the English bid I don't think he slagged off the Australian bid no, he just he didn't just, talk about it which yeah. is probably even worse yeah. <laughs> alright so I mean, do we think, I mean, I was thinking about this January and, and the fallout. Do we think that the Qatar decision is the, the straw that broke the camel's back as far as FIFA concerned yes. for the rest of the world? That all of a sudden it, it's that one World Cup that, that is just beyond belief, that people are going to go, hang on, this has just gone on too far. Absolutely. We've, we've got to sort this out. And we've, we've heard rumours about the US, the UK getting together and looking at this. Is that realistic? You know, can they challenge FIFA's authority, or are they too well entrenched? Well, I'm not sure they're, they're, they're going to. I mean, there were rumours that you know England was going to pull out of FIFA and lead a uh, a revolt or whatever. I'm not sure that's going to happen, but I think that revolution will have to come from within, because this process has been now so badly tainted that. Uh, and, and look, there are no checks and balances on this. I mean, FIFA, I know, has its own ethics committee that. that they say they're independent. I've no reason to disbelieve that. But if they're independent, why is it labelled the FIFA Ethics Committee? Um, yeah. you know, well, surely and Les Murray, who sits on it, has come out and slammed yeah. the, the politics to give but the it, but World if Cup guitar. If it is legitimate and if it is independent, this whole process should be investigated by the Ethics Committee. It's reports made public and it's recommendations acted upon. Do we, do we believe that will happen? No, I mean, it's, also, it's also the selective nature of everything that they do in that Les Murray was not allowed to sit on the ethics committee because Australia was a bidding nation, yet all the ex-co-members that are from bidding nations are allowed to vote. 
it just yeah. seems like they, they make it up as they go along. Well, to see uh, you know, on, in a similar vein, Reynold Tamari, guilty of a, a still unclear breach of confidentiality, whatever the hell that means, um, and then you know has his his uh, suspension reduced down to one year. Is told that Oceania just time can vote, so he can't vote. Yeah, but and then Oceania are told they can vote so long as tomorrow accepts his suspension. All of a sudden, you know, the rumours are he goes and meets with Bin Hammam and he decides to appeal. I mean, the waters are so murky. Um, and not the first time Oceania has been involved in it. And it shows how important every single vote is. Uh, and maybe, uh, you know, Mr. Bin Hammam didn't feel that Qatar had the numbers to knock out Australia in the first round. So, that, you know, it's just... It's disgraceful, isn't it? I think a lot of these suggestions that have come out have been from angry, emotional English journalists that are making suggestions that I don't think are ever going to happen. And one thing I, I read is that, you know, the FIFA don't like us, you know, this is English journalists, the FIFA don't like us because, you know, this idea that we're above them because we've got the Premier League. So what we should do is we should do that 39th game. We should tour the world. We should grind other leagues into the ground. And it's like that's not actually a suggestion. It's is just proven FIFA's yeah, point. But you, you're you, just upset. You know? But also, Do you know, know what, Trevor? Isn't it fantastic, though, that the passion for football is so great that that's what is occurring in England at the moment. Now, if only we had a similar culture here whereby people were actually sit around and discussing, okay, what the hell are we going to do to make sure that we get a World Cup here and that we are a major player in this game? And instead, tragically, and we all knew it was going to happen, a couple of days after Australia lose the votes, instead we get our usual friends from the anti-football media writing, oh, we didn't want the silly thing anyway. Yeah, so yeah. That's I, the difference. And I, yeah. and I think that there was probably a part of me, and I don't know if you felt the same, was that when England didn't get it as well, you felt like we almost had like a gang on our side you know, almost like this group that go, right, well, at least the British media are going to go after FIFA now. We I might think the, the English bid team, though, sort of put themselves in a corner because they've completely distanced themselves from, yeah, from and, the And then whinged about it afterwards. <laughs> so many times, writing personally to the FIFA executive committee saying, you know, they don't speak for us. You know, and then when they don't get it, it's like, it's all corrupt. It's like, get behind us, the media. Yeah. yeah. Even the Sun, I think, like, like castigating the BBC and then the following day, it's like, you know, fixed... <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So where where does this leave us? You know, we, we've been a lot of talk that we've taken our eye off the ball on the A League to focus on the World Cup bid. Um, it's it's done now. We can pick the bones out of it for the next few months. But we've still got an A League going on. We've still got a domestic league that needs urgent attention. Uh, yesterday or the day before, obviously we talked to Frank Lowe. He's come out of press conference said that he will be offering Ben Buckley a new contract. Where do we stand on that? Is, is Ben the right man and Lyle Gorman to, to lead the A-League forward without the distraction of the World Cup bid? I mean, how, how much of his time do we think was focused on the World Cup bid? Well, I hope it was a lot because then that might mean something might happen after. I, I was thinking the other day, what, has Buckley been there all four years now? Yeah. So I, I tried to list in my head what he's introduced in those four years, those essential four formative years of the league that has really enabled the game to kick on. And to be honest with you, I, I kind of struggled. You know, even the introduction of the W League and National Youth League have, has been an extra strain on the clubs financially, so you could claim that they're not the best. So, I mean, in a four-year period, which is a, you know, a long time, he seems to have done very little, you know, imaginative stuff, revolutionary stuff to get the game going. So what he's going to do over the next... I mean, do we know how long his next contract is? Is it another four years? I don't think it's been announced yet, has it? Right, so, you know, we need to start 
finding out exactly what he plans to do in this next period because I haven't seen a lot happen so far. Well, I think, I think we'll probably know uh, more after today, funnily enough. I think the FFA are actually having a board meeting to discuss the wash-up of the, of the failed World Cup bid and uh, probably uh, try and agree on a strategy as to how to move forward. Look, at, Personally speaking, I, I like Ben. He's, yeah, he's a lovely yeah, guy. I think, I think we all, we all uh, agree on that. Um, I, I do think he's done some good things behind the scenes. Uh, I think that's very much the way he operates. Uh, and it's very much the, the culture of the FFA, a, a safe pair of hands. We saw that with the bid as well. Safe pair of hands, don't rock the boats. I'll go back to what I said at the start. Personally speaking, I think we need a much more aggressive approach. And I mean a con- controlled aggressive approach. I'm not, you know, coming out, punches flying. Um, but we need to be a lot more aggressive. Um, and I think that uh, Ben is probably the, the safe choice for Frank Lower. I think he complements Frank very well. I'm not surprised he, he's going to be offered uh, a new contract. And if, if he is going to stay on, okay, that, that's fine. But we need to hold our people a lot more accountable. And I think what's happened over the last few years, because the, the game has grown exponentially from where it was five or six years ago, We've given the guys, understandably so, an awful lot of leeway, Frank included, yep. um, because he's you know, pretty much saved the game, let's be mm, honest, yep. uh, at the top level. I think the next period is going to be crucial for, for our development, if it hopefully is going to carry on developing, and therefore both Frank and Ben and the rest of the FFA team need to be held a lot more directly accountable for their successes and failures. And that's part of our job in the media and what we will have to do over the next few years. We need to be a lot more critical. Um, And if Ben is going to stay on, fine. I want him to be surrounded by football people. I think, you know, if if it's not going to be Ben, I do think we need... You know, not you know someone who's out there on the front foot selling the game. Absolutely. You know, and, and that, talk, to be fair to Ben, that's not his strong no, point. No, it's not. It's not his style either. But but I think he needs to appreciate that. Yeah. And I don't think it's Lyle Gorman's style either. You know, so maybe I don't know whether they create a new position. You know, but we need someone who's out there selling the game every day on the hustings. You know, taking on Demetrio in the best way possible. You know, I agree. Not not slanging matches, but just positively putting a positive spin on what we're doing. You know, because just, just to go back to the, uh, the, the the culture that surrounds the FFA, that's, uh, that's safe, um, almost, uh, I'm going to use this word here, sanitised culture. And we've seen that in the A-League over the last few years. You know, And it is just recently, just starting to change slightly. You know, Players have been given directives. Okay, it's okay, you can go out and you, know, you can say a few things after games. Whereas for the first few years of the A-League, it was very, very tightly controlled. Don't say anything controversial. Don't do this, don't do that. Um, you know, it's, as soon as you write a piece in a, a 442 magazine that's slightly controversial, you know, you, you've got a please explain phone call to your bosses. Ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous for a game that is not number one in this country. All the publicity we can get via the press, radio, TV, we need every last inch of it because this is a game that is trying to grow. Therefore, we need to engage people. And for the last few years, particularly with the A-League, I have to say, I don't know if you agreed, Trev, we've disengaged people because there have not been any headlines. There's not yep. been any controversy. There's not been anything for people to get their teeth into. Therefore, people have basically they've switched off. Mm. They've forgotten that it exists which is a ridiculous state of affairs. We have to be talking about the game. That's what It's the lifeblood of the football fan to go down the pub and go, what about that guy's tackle last night? And did you hear what he said? And, you know, what about Ben Buckley, what he said in the press last week? Absolutely ridiculous. That's what, you know, it feeds our love of the game because we can go and talk about it and have opinions. And that's all been lost in this 
void of, of sanitization and the A-League has suffered massively because of it. Yeah. People yeah. are just, they're not interested because they don't know anything about it. Yeah. I think it needs, and also, you know, even though the, the, it was a bit of a more sanitised approach in the first couple of seasons, it was backed with some quite edgy marketing. Hmm. So I think, if we, you know, I think you can't ignore any of the elements. It all needs to come together. So they need to loosen the strings on the, on the opinion side of things. They need to be a bit more on the front foot from a PR perspective and put some money back into marketing the game. Yeah. And they need to and listen. And not just marketing it on Fox Sports. It's got to be marketed on... They if need the to, game's not on free-to-air, they have to be. They need to listen to the fans as yeah. well and, and what they you know, especially want, why they're coming to games and why they're not coming to games. Mm. And, and we've said this before on this podcast. My, my concern is, you know, and, and we raised this at the meeting, thing, my concern is not necessarily that the, that the floating voters are, are not coming to the game at the moment. It's that season ticket holders are not going to the game at the moment. Yeah, like Sydney I, FC got 4,000 people. That means there are probably... Three or four thousand season ticket holders that are choosing not to go. Melbourne Victory, seventeen thousand members, averaging fourteen thousand. They've paid their season. money and they're not going. That to me is the That's biggest the worry, alarm bell, and that should be the first thing they should be doing. You know, they should be ringing samples of these people because they can obviously track. They would obviously be able to track the, the the membership card with who's going. Ring them up. Spend a day on the phone. Why aren't you coming to the game? You've paid. It's free. You know, you paid six months ago. Why aren't you coming? Go, going back to the World Cup bid and, and getting the World Cup bid, if we'd got it, it would have been a massive shot in the arm for Australian football. There's no point denying that. But do you really think that if we won the World Cup and it's coming in 12 years' time, that the floodgates would open on A-League crowds, that load of people would start coming back? I think the FA would dine out on a little bit and say, oh, we've got the World Cup going. I think not getting the World Cup puts their focus back on the A-League, and it's going to make them work harder yeah, to get yeah. those crowds I agree. back. I agree. However, what bringing the World Cup here would have done, would have, uh, it would have certainly helped financially because yeah. commercial the, support, the, the investment think, yeah. would have been there both from governments and from the corporate world, therefore freeing up money for the FFA to do other mm. things. So that, that's the downside of it. But I agree with you. In essence, what it means now is that the, the focus can be and definitely should be 100% squarely on the A-League, not the Youth League, no disrespect, not the Women's League, no disrespect, not anything else. It has to be on the A-League because without it, we're stuffed. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. On that note, we're going to take a break. Long first section, but uh, justifiably so, I think. Uh, we'll be back uh, to talk A-League in part two where we'll review round 17, 18 and the little bit of 16, I think it is at the moment. It doesn't seem to be... Uh, the round system seems to have gone out the window. They're just playing games. <laughs> Therein lies really. another problem. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll talk about that after the break. The January edition of 442 is now available. Here's Andy and Trev with a look at what's inside. Trev, yeah. we have the complete guide to the Asian Cup. Every team profile, everything you need to know about Australia's quest for glory. Real chance of winning silverware. Expert predictions. That's not us, is it? Expert? <laughs> no, no. I've got, some, I've got some great freelancers. Fantastic. Pele at 70, the world's best player. Couldn't get any more in depth. Two hours we had with him. No, he talks us through every moment of these incredible career. So even if you are a Pelé nut, there's everything in here for you. If you've often wanted to know more about him, you know you know he's the greatest player ever, but you don't know every detail of his career, then get it as well. If that's not enough, Craig Moore answers all of your questions that we put to him. We've got the new performance section, guaranteed to make you a better player. A trip around the world in planet football. Profile of the world's worst football team. And it's on sale now, all good news agents. Or, as of now, on sale on iTunes for the iPad. So the new issue of 442 
If it's in the game, we've got it covered. The latest on the world game. This is 442 Insider. Hello, welcome back to this week's 442 Insider Podcast. We're back firmly and squarely on the A-League now. So uh, as we were all still crying into our beer on Friday night, uh, Melbourne Victory and Brisbane Raw probably did the best thing that they could do, which was go out and put on a bloody good show for the supporters uh, and for those watching on Fox Sports with a, a 3-3 cracker. Um, we'll long be remembered, though, for the, for the equaliser, 93rd minute. Um, Mike Theokratos caught the ball in row, row B, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Gave the impression that the ball was still in the uh, 18-yard box. Hoofed it down the other end, Matt Mackay equalised. Uh, is that the biggest clangor we've seen so far? Well, in fairness, there's, there's been a few others, hasn't there? It's a tough well. competition on that front. <laughs> the, uh, the, the poor old refs and linesmen, and I know this is a cliche, but they do have a, have a tough job, and I feel for them. They're not full-time. Um, and they do cop it. It's the same the world over, of course. He's being but kind, mate. I am being he kind, was, but... He was three foot out. I know, I know. Um, but, it, look, they need some help. It's as simple as that. And well, Kevin Musket was trying to give them a bit of help. He's trying to give them a bit of help every week. Doesn't he always? I, 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 would, I would like to see video technology introduced. Why don't we go for it? We can pioneer you it. Can if we can ha- pioneer banning absolutely. diving, why don't we pioneer technology? And you can, you can have a cricket or a tennis-type system whereby... You get one or two appeals per half or per, ga- per game, whatever, it, however it's going to work. And you have that appeal system there purely for those big moments. And if you've used them up, well, you know, you tough. And, and that's you- an extra element. I've been loving the appeals in the cricket. Cause no, it's, I do it, love it, it, it's like an extra well, thing. They're doing basketball as well. There was one in the final couple. morning of the test when yeah. the umpires gave it not out. And England appealed it's swam, it, and it, it yeah. with LBW. So, right? so why don't we go for it? I mean, surely we, we can't Sod be now worried about FIFA. We don't about care FIFA. about <laughs> yeah, well, Let's do our own thing. Let's turn it into quarters. Yeah. Well, one thing <laughs> I was thinking, special teams. No, let's not. <laughs> I was thinking about referees. You know, kind of where have the referees come from? What's their progression into becoming an A-League ref? What experience have they got before? What training do they get? I'm genuinely asking because I don't know. Via the state leagues, isn't it? State state leagues and then the best performing state leagues get promoted. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, I I don't quite know how they they work it. We we do seem to have seen an awful lot of new referees appear over the last uh, 12 months. Obviously, we've lost a few as well. Mark Shield has retired. Uh, Simon... um, uh, Prisdak, uh, I think, retired through injury. Yeah. Uh, Strebray Dolovsky has, I know, had a back operation, so uh, he's, so he's, he's been out for quite some time. I didn't mind him. I he was probably So they did need to bring, uh, you know, some new ones through. But they bring uh, some Scottish refs over. They're, they're looking for new gigs, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Boyle. Actually, I, I spoke to I spoke to Gary Power a while back about uh, um, Chris Boyle, and he said he, he gave me some quite interesting information. Um, this was going back to the Melbourne Victory North Queensland Fury game. You might the remember the three all drawn. There was all sorts of things going diving. on. Yeah, and and one of the uh, one of the things he was telling me was that uh, Chris Boyle is perhaps a victim of the way they they actually train their referees over in the UK, um, whereby the referees are told to to pretty much keep in line with the ball as they you know run after the play. They move diagonal, now, don't they, from in, one side to the well, other? Well, in Australia. 
that's the way they're taught to move diagonally yeah. to either side. So they get a, a side angle. Sign, yeah. But Chris Ball, of course, has come up through the, the Scottish system or the British system, whatever you want to call it. And Gary felt that perhaps that's why he'd, he'd made, uh, you know, what in, in most of our opinions was a mistake or two in that game because he'd reverted back to his original training. So I think it's interesting when you, when you actually hear the, the explanations. And again, look, this goes back to our previous discussion segment. The FFA as a governing body needs to be a lot more open. Let the referees talk. They're, they're human. They make mistakes. We all make mistakes. If they genuinely feel they got something right, maybe they've, they've made a decision based on something that we as you know, laymen, as supporters, haven't quite understood or, or realised. So let them come out and speak. Yeah. Let it, let's have the debate. And also, one of the things that I've sort of found as well, that, that the referral system in cricket has shown, is just how often the, refer- the umpires are actually right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they do a fantastic job. 90% of the time, their first instinct and their first decision has been proved to be right, in which case it's... You know, it's it's validating their sort of... uh, And and in fairness to our refs, you know, we pick up on the big controversial moments. And probably up until that point... The referee hadn't got a single thing wrong in the yeah. 90 minutes, but that's what he'll be remembered by. Yeah. And okay, that they should get those things right. But uh, the thing that annoys me, perhaps m- most of all, is we see a lot of borderline offside decisions, or even not so borderline, going the way of the defending side. Now, I, I would like to see the assistant referees told, if you're in doubt, give the advantage to the attacking side. All right, you'll still get hammered if it's wrong, but let's try and be positive. Yeah. Okay, uh, Sydney SC went up the uh, F3 to the Mariners and got spanked, 4-0. Uh, was this the end of the mini Sydney SC revival? Was this a reminder of just how poor Sydney really are this year? They've had a few false dawns on the Sydney revival, haven't they, where they've had a couple of draws and a win or whatever, but still not looked particularly great. And no, they didn't look particularly great going into that Mariners game, and it's no surprise that... You know, they got smashed, and they really got smashed, didn't they? Well, I, I call this game, and uh, I mean, I have to say this season, this is probably the, the vagaries of the salary cap coming into play. You know, Sydney FC, champions last season, um, can't take a trick this time around. It shows that your recruitment, when you're working under a salary cap that's the same as every other club, has to be absolutely spot on. And if you get one or two wrong, or if you get unlucky, like Sydney have been with injuries, yeah. particularly to Nicky Carl, who is going to be their, you know, their big star, then you can really struggle. And also, we see it in rugby league a fair bit in that the, you know, the team that's successful and wins the championship can't hold on to all their players because all of a sudden their value's gone up and they can't all of a sudden fit the same squad under a salary cap. Well, I mean, so rug- they're picked off by other teams that, that create room for them. And rugby league has an advantage over football in that you know only two countries play it. So they're, they're just in competition with all the other clubs in the league. So at least that quality can stay in the competition. Whereas with us, you know, if you get a, a youngster that uh, is flying, like, for example, Tommy all last season, Lecky's he has one good gone. season, and, you know, there we go. Thanks very much. I'm off to Europe. Yep. Right, North Queensland, uh, beaten at home by the Jets, 2-0. Uh, Nikolai Topper Stanley in a rich vein of scoring form and a breakaway <laughs> goal from Sachs. The feature on Fox worked, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Jets seeming to find some form. They did this last season about the same time, didn't they? they Went were, on a run. They went on a bit of a run about. and put themselves right back in contention, but then fought, fell away again. That's what it's about with the finals, isn't it? If you can go on a run kind of now, leading into the new year and stuff, then... I, th- I think there have been a, a couple of key factors for the Jets. Well, three, in fact. First of all, the, the off-field stuff being sorted out, which has obviously given them a huge boost and reconnected with the fan base. Um, but also two on-the-park um, factors, I think. One has been the form of Milicevic and Topper Stanley as a central yeah. defensive pairing. I think they've been absolutely sensational. And we should give some credit to Ben Kennedy as well, who's really come of age this season. I know he's injured at the moment. But also the acquisition of Franny Jeffers and Branko Kalina deserves a lot of credit for that because he's given them a new dimension. He's yeah. making runs that they didn't have before. He's linking with the midfield. He's providing chances. And as we saw last night for the first time, he's taken one. I think he'll go on and score a few. Yeah, and again, you know, he's he's clearly put himself in the shop window. He's only on a guest stint at the moment. I don't know. Sign him up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I also think that this has also coincided with the, with Yesic getting back True. fit and in the squad, and he's, he's a cracking little player, I think. And he's a, yeah, people have criticised Bolton for the second goal last night, but it was a very smart finish. Yeah, mm. and you imagine know, when they get that in. Imagine Bridget. when they get Michael Bridges back. For Him and yeah. Jeffers up front. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Phoenix got back to winning ways. They've been having a bit of a wobble. Uh, it was at Christchurch, fourteen thousand there at Christchurch. So again, the, uh, you know, taking the games around seems to work for them there. They got, I think it was twenty thousand. They got the first time they went. There. They did. Yeah. Um, Sergio Van Dijk uh, opened the scoring, but then Wellington got a winner in the ninety-fourth minute. We're going to talk about the officials again because there was the Travis Don yeah. <laughs> red card. We're trying to get out of the way of someone's head. Uh, that's obviously since been rescinded, quite rightly. And, uh, and Ricky Herbert was sent to the stands and has since had the ban reduced to a game. Um, but good header from Sigmund to win it in the 94th minute. Nothing better, in my view, in football than an injury time winner. Yeah. Well, especially when For you're anyone. A, especially I love when you're a, a local <laughs> boy. I mean, Ben Sigmund is from that part of the world, isn't he? So yeah. I mean, you, you couldn't have written a better story and... Uh, yeah, fantastic. Great crowd as well. You know, maybe we should be looking at New Zealand for expansion. Maybe mm-hmm. a second club uh, in Christchurch. Controversial. Big Just call. to give it to Bin Amam as well. Let's, let's <laughs> introduce video replays and a second team in New Zealand. Go and an Oceania well. team. Let's roll our own race. <laughs> right. uh, Gold Coast, 3-0 winners against Hart Hart. We're in a bit of a, bit a, of a real slump, slump aren't they? Yeah. Um, Bass van den Brink, another one that's going on a scoring spree. Some crackers uh, as well. A two from Kalina. Um, we're going to have to talk about the crowd there, less than 2,000, 1,600. Uh, dreadful. Dreadful. What is there to say? I mean, what can be done about it other than um, removing Clive Palmer, if that's what the FFA want to do? I'm not sure they can. I mean, they've, they've signed a licence with him. He's one of the few we've sold the they money. Him with? Well, yeah, exactly. That, like that's, that's the other problem. And... Okay, if if Clive is staying, which clearly at the moment he is, and uh, you know certainly the fact that he he uh, he runs a professional football club without you know financial worries is is a rarity in the A League. So that that's a, that's a plus point. But you know what is actually being done for the football community on the Gold Coast? Is there actually a a football community on the Gold Coast big enough to support a professional club? I mean, Jason Colina is has questioned that in the last few days, obviously yeah. trying to you know, urge people to come down and watch the game. But have they now been um, you know, so disenfranchised by, by Clive Palmer that they just won't turn up? I mean, when they, he was introducing the cap of 5,000, we were up in arms. You know, this is a disgrace. They're not going to get above 5,000. And now they're getting 1,600. 
I mean, not only did they not get them at first, that they've managed to push away the but ones that did. Do you know the, yeah. thing, the thing that baffles me about Clive is it, it, part of the reason, well, the, the entire reason he introduced the, the cap was because he was angry with the Anna Bligh government for the high uh, stadium rent that they have to pay at, at Rabina for that stadium. Fair enough. It's, it's his money. Why should he lose $80,000 every home game? Totally understand that. Yeah. Clive is one of the wealthiest men in Australia. Why doesn't he go and build a 10,000 all-seater purpose-built stadium for the Gold Coast? It's all yours. Stick a casino or a supermarket on the side of it if you want. I don't care. But that facility is then there for the Gold Coast. And it's an asset. For all time. And it's an asset. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I just question if we actually walked into the Gold Coast United offices and said, right, where's the five- and ten-year business plan? for this football club I, I don't get the feeling there is one well, they're, I think they're, they're, going, not in for I think they're long going from game to game from week to week and they're going to assess it at the end of the season yeah. unlike the, the people who's uh, come in and gone yeah. right Granko there's a four year contract right here's, here's, the, you know, here's the ten year plan the people I feel sorry for are uh, the people who work at Gold Coast United's um, you know, behind the scenes, because I know that they're passionate football people and they would love to go out and try and attract yeah. more people. And also, the players, how soul-destroying for the players. They're a good side. They're worth watching Gold Coast. And Miron Blyberg as well. They deserve to have a lot more people watching them. And it must be, as I say, soul-destroying soul to go and play yeah. in front of that crowd every week. OK. Uh, last night, we saw Newcastle get up 2-0 against Melbourne Heart. Uh, again, Franny Jeffers got off the mark, but uh, Marco Jesic with a neatly taken second goal. Hart, let's have a quick couple of minutes on Hart. They, were, they came back into things, now they've sort of slipped away. I think it's five, five losses out of the last six. You, you think, especially as a new team, you, you could see them gelling a little bit, couldn't you? It's a bit of a cliche, but you could. You know, they were coming together, and you felt with that team that they assembled that they were going to be a serious threat going in. So for them to implode in the manner they have is a bit of a surprise, to be fair. I mean, I didn't see the game last night because I was at the launch of the Women's World Cup thing, so um, I can't comment on how they performed last night, but looking at their results, um, yeah, they're only going in one direction, aren't they? Look, they've got one big problem, haven't they? They can't score goals at the moment. I think it's, was it five games since they last scored? Um, they're, they're the equal lowest scorers in the league, 18 yeah. goals in 20 games. And obviously, John Aloisi is, is in and out because of fitness concerns. Alex Terra hasn't provided the goals that uh, you know most people thought he would. Uh, and aside of those two, Gerald Seabon chips in with one or two here and there, but they don't really have a regular goal scorer. So yeah. uh, if you don't score goals, you don't win matches, do you? We talked about the fact that the league, league's been a bit more spread out than last season, but if you actually look at it with the vagaries of the draw this year, we've got teams that have played 20, teams that have played 17. There's, there's actually seven points right now between bottom and being in the finals position. I still think you've got a top four, though. I, th I yeah, think there's a yeah. clear demarcation yeah, yeah. The top, between the top four looks pretty settled. Brisbane, Adelaide, Gold Coast, Central Coast. Though if you rest. equal the games out, there's only really three points between the top four. So whilst Brisbane are, are quite a way ahead at the moment, that could very easily tighten up as those, ga those games in hand get played. I think played. in terms of consistency, though, those, those four have been by far the best teams in the league this season. All right, Newcastle could make a run. Well, any of them could make a run. I still think Melbourne Victory will probably have something to say about where the, uh, the silverware ends up. But, uh, but those four have been a class above, in my opinion. They won't catch Brisbane, even though there's, there's games in hand for the, the, the guys below. Um, they've just had the consistency, and they've got a style which is going to get enough of a spread of points between now and the end of the season, aren't they? Yeah. 
Okay, right. We're going to take another quick break and we'll be back to do a quick preview of this weekend's action, which uh, officially is round 18. Visit Football Emporium on www.footballemporium.biz to see the largest selection of football merchandise and memorabilia in Australia. A real football shopping experience. Or why not pop in and visit them directly at 139 Victoria Road, Dremoyne. Or simply call them on 1304Goals to find out what's new in the football world. Back to 442 Insider. Hello, welcome back to the final part of this week's 442 Insider. We're going to preview week 18. Uh, kicks off tomorrow night with Adelaide hosting North Queensland, Hindmarsh Stadium, home banker. You would discuss. think so. Yeah, you'd, you'd think so. I mean, a lot of people have a soft spot for the Fury and want to see him survive, and it would just be a case of watching David Williams shoot from 30 yards until he tries to get one in. But yeah, I could see Adelaide dominating that one. Yeah, I'm very surprised for any other result from that. Adelaide, if they, if they do have a weakness, it's on the road at the moment. But uh, at home, they're very strong and they get great crowds. I love going to Highmarsh on a Friday night. It's a fantastic mm. atmosphere. Yeah. Highmarsh, to me, is almost like everywhere when you watch it, is the quintessential the A-League for what stadium. the A-League should be. Yep. You know, every club, every, you know, anyone that comes into the A-League should be told by the FFA... That's that's what you should be aiming for. We want to see a plan for you to have your own boutique stadium that holds fifteen thousand and fill it, and then worry about it afterwards. You know, all right. Add Sporting Bet. I've got Adelaide at dollar sixty, North Queensland six dollars twenty-five, and the draw three dollars fifty. Well, that's one of the biggest fair differences enough. we've seen all season, isn't it? But probably yeah, fair exactly. enough. Exactly. All right. Second uh, Melbourne derby this weekend. Uh, Amy Park, Melbourne Heart are designated the home team at this one. Uh, Melbourne Victory the away team Sporting Bet has got it quite close Melbourne Heart $2.75 Victory $2.45 and a draw $3.30 Yeah I fancy Melbourne Victory for this one yeah. I think they'll be fired up yeah. um, and Hart going through a bit of a trough at the moment so I think even though they didn't defeat Brisbane last Friday I think they'll have taken a lot of heart from uh, <laughs> if you pardon the pun <laughs> from that particular performance uh, Victory because I, I thought they played pretty well and showed a lot of spirit there's goals are plenty in that side if they can just tighten up at the back, I still think they're going to challenge for the silverware, and I think they'll be too good for an out-of-sorts heart. No, I'd agree with that. I think, uh, I think, yeah, I agree. I think Victory have got that experience when it matters to the big games, and you always feel when it comes to the knockout stages in, in the finals, if they can make the finals, which they should do, that they've got that ability to go away and win, which is critical. And there, there aren't a lot of teams in the A-League that, that, that do that. And they have that style, don't they? Thompson and Cruz on the break. They're, you know, they're very difficult. And they've got Carlos who can come up with something from a dead ball that, that can win. They've got the goals. Yeah. They've got goals are plenty in that side. Yeah. Uh, Gold Coast at home to Wellington, Skill Park. Uh, Gold Coast, Sporting Bet, $1.78. Gold Coast, Wellington, $4.50. Draw, $3.40. Wellington, poor travellers normally. Trev, do you see that? Do you think they'll get over 1,600 for that? Quarter past, quarter past eight on a Saturday night against Wellington? What else is there to do on the Gold Coast on a Saturday? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that could be an even lower crowd, but I do think the home side will win there. I mean, very difficult to back Wellington on the road, isn't it, regardless of who they're playing and Gold Coast are going well. And yeah, I think they'll swap Wellington aside relatively easily I actually, I actually call one of the, the Gold Coast Wellington games last season actually Wellington won it through a Paul Eiffel goal it might even have been a penalty if memory serves but uh, yeah I'm with you the, until Wellington sort out this uh, this away anomaly 
they're always going to be sort of halfway or thereabouts in the table at best. It's weird, isn't it? Uh, they can yeah. be with and Perth the same, the same. personnel. Perth are the same. Perth are the same. Different, and you know, and we've we've discussed it at length on this a number of times that it does the travelling take that much out of you that it can be that different. And I tell you, Ross Aloisi um, told me when he was playing for Wellington, they tried all sorts of different things. They tried going early. They tried going on the day of the game. They tried leaving half the squad there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they've tried so many different things to to, you know to get an end product, and they just can't do it. It's so strange. I mean, I, I I know a Premier League example. I know West Ham are not exactly flying at home. But Not we haven't anywhere. No, <laughs> <laughs> but we uh, we haven't won an away game since the first game of last season. So, you know, I, I watch every West Ham game and I sit and watch an away game thinking I am wasting my time because we are not going to win this. It's bizarre, isn't it? You know, I know there's a big home advantage, but they can be like a completely different football team. OK, Sunday, Sydney FC entertain high flying Brisbane Raw. <laughs> Now, I'm looking at the odds on this. Sporting bet have got it. $2.90 Sydney, $2.35 Brisbane. Oh, my God. That's a value bet if ever I've seen it. And a draw, $3.30. Well, so if Sydney FC defend like they did against the Mariners last Friday, then Brisbane could get double figures. Um, so that, that's the first thing. I think Vitislav Lovetska will have been working uh, pretty solidly on defensive cohesion uh, this week because they were woeful last week in Gosford. Um, and if they do the same, Brisbane will literally... We'll, we'll be hearing that song that we've heard in the ashes. Whoever Can we it play is, you? will tear you apart <laughs> um, because they will, Brisbane, the way they're playing. So you can work on you know, your defensive shape all week, but then if Hayden Fox just has a brain explosion on the six-yard line... Like it wasn't did, just him just, either, to be honest. You know, Ivan just, missed the ball. just missed the ball. Ivan yeah. Nachevsky was at fault for one of the goals. In fact, I wouldn't actually be surprised if Levitska is considering bringing Liam Reddy back. I know Ivan's you know, done pretty well since he came back in, but uh, he has made a few mistakes of late. Mm. Okay. I like it when Fox and Keller play together at the back. That's really good fun watching those two slowly... <laughs> Yeah, cover sure 10 yards sure in about 10 minutes when the, when the QE2 and the Queen Mary were in Sydney Harbour <laughs> yeah. uh, Central Coast Mariners you noticed I'm staying quiet yeah. Yeah. Central Coast Mariners head over to Perth um, for, the, for the final game on Sunday it's a tough one to call, to call actually I mean you'd still think the Mariners would be able to do enough but perhaps the trip over Central Coast draw, slight favourites $2.45 to Perth $2.75 draw three thirty. Then that's probably, probably fair enough. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you'd have to make the Mariners' favourites on current form, but uh, you know, traditionally Perth are stronger at home, and um, I mean, just who knows what you're going to get with Perth at the moment? They, they, they should be desperate enough. They, they yeah. shouldn't lack for motivation. But I um, mean, the stats don't lie. They've scored the fewest goals and they've conceded the most. That's Perth. <laughs> Great combo. In a nutshell. <laughs> Not scored fewer than. Um, Newcastle. New, uh, Newcastle got 15. Oh, sorry. They? Yeah, Newcastle, 15. Yeah. Missed that. Uh, yeah. Melbourne Heart and Perth Glory scored 18. But they've conceded it, the most. Isn't it amazing goals. when you think back after round three, Perth were top of the table. This is they scored, year. I think, 10 goals. They were absolutely flying. And they have crashed like a stone, haven't they? Yeah. We both tipped them in, the, in our yeah, pre-season. Well, it shows how much <laughs> we know, Jacko. <laughs> Those pre-season things. Every year we look at them I, remember, the I did tip Man City to win the Premier League. And I yeah, again, it shows how much we know. <laughs> still think that's in there with the shout. Uh, so, Trev, final thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go win. for a draw. I think Perth will, okay. will grind something out. I don't think it'll be a fantastic game. Okay, we've got a couple of week, midweek games next week. Uh, Jets entertain Gold Coast. 
and Sydney travel up to North Queensland. They're both on Wednesday night. That's an interesting game, isn't it? The Fury Sydney one. Two teams struggling there. I mean, if, if Sydney was serious about finals charge, they've got to get something from that. And the two Kalinas meeting at uh, Energy Australia Stadium. I'd be interested to see what the crowd is there uh, in midweek. When do the kids finish? When do the kids work? Simon, you know this. So, uh, yeah, I think most of them have finished, actually. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. again, with the, with the free. Free entry for the kids, that could be a good crowd there at Newcastle. An attractive game as well. I mean, yeah. Gold Coast, are, you know, they are a good side to yeah. watch. And with Newcastle in good form at the moment, so yeah, I think that could be a really good game. All right. Well, that's it for this week. The World Cup dream is no more. Back to business, back to bread and butter, back to the A-League. So get out and support your local team this weekend. Simon, thanks a lot for coming in. No problem. Always a pleasure. Trev, thanks, mate. Cheers. See you next week. And don't forget, our iPad edition is out, and it is bloody sexy. So get onto <laughs> iTunes and buy it. Keep us all in the job. See you later. 442 Insider is a Helms Media Solutions production. Visit helms.com.au to find out more about our services.